Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Expected Value, a podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media Networks, and our goals for this podcast are to pull back the curtain a bit, to talk with people in the sports industry about what they do, how they use analytics, and how they got to where they are. So if you like sports and or analytics, I think you'll find something to like here. Our first guest is the Minnesota Twins' Daniel Adler, who has a fascinating career path that began with Major League Baseball, moved to the NFL, working with the Patriots and Browns until 2012, when the Jacksonville Jaguars hired him to launch their football research and development group, one of the first such groups in the league. After years in football, Adler's now been with the Twins for nearly two years as their director of baseball operations. In my conversation with Adler, he'll tell us what a director of baseball operations does and how he uses analytics, how he and his team communicate with on-field personnel, what's going on with the Twins' home run explosion this season, differences between baseball and football analytics, what he looks for in potential employees, and he even caps things off with a Bartolo Colon story. Then Albert Larcada and I will be back to react to the interview and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with the Minnesota Twins' Daniel Adler. We're joined on Expected Value by Daniel Adler, the Minnesota Twins Director of Baseball Operations. Daniel, thank you for joining us. Let's start at a high level with just something that may not be known by people who haven't worked with a team. I know I didn't really know uh, until the last couple of years working more closely with baseball teams. Tell us just broadly speaking, what do you do? What are the areas of responsibility for you and the baseball operations department? Good question. And uh, I think even if you have worked with a baseball team, the role of Director of Baseball Ops can vary a lot from team to team. It can pretty much mean just about anything. So for me with the Twins, uh, my primary responsibility is overseeing our research and development group. Uh, We have a team of analysts and a team of developers. uh, And really, I try to uh, just get out of the way and let their great ideas uh, flourish and impact our decision making. I also uh, do some work in terms of transactions Uh, some smaller transactions when we send players to Asia. Uh, I keep some weird hours, so I tend to be the person who uh, makes those phone calls with Japan or Korea. Um, I also do some work on the arbitration side of things, uh, whether it's the negotiation part on the front end or if we're unsuccessful in negotiation, um, some work preparing uh, preparing our case, which thankfully we've only gone one time in the past, uh, I think more than a dozen years. We didn't go this past year, but we did uh, did go my first year with the team, so I'd say those are the primary areas of responsibility. But I've really had a chance to uh, dabble in a lot of different areas. One great thing about the research and development group is we get to really touch all parts of baseball operations, so player development, amateur scouting, pro scouting, uh, and even a fair amount on the health and performance side. That's a lot of stuff. Tell me what what's a normal day like for you? We'll say during the regular season, you know, so just a normal you know Tuesday or whatever it might be. A normal Tuesday. So today, uh, I guess it's a pretty pretty normal Tuesday. So I would say uh, probably roughly a quarter of my time in any given week is spent kind of meeting individual analysts and developers one on one, just checking in, making sure they have everything they need, getting status updates on an individual level. We also a couple times a week we get together and we have a uh, scrum where each person gives a rapid fire update of what they're working on, where they're blocked, where they maybe need some help. Um, that's usually followed by a little presentation from 
somebody on their group can be a, an analyst or, or it can be a developer where they show off something they've worked on and try to get feedback. Um, today, I also had a Spanish class over the lunch period uh, and then some meetings with uh, some people from the business side of the organization and giving where we share updates on uh, you know, what each respective uh, department is doing. So I would say this is a reasonably uh, average average day. And then occasionally I get uh, some time to sit down and do a little bit of analysis myself where I'll dig into uh, either True Media or some of our internal tables and try to answer some questions. But uh, I would say I, I rank very low on our list of analysts. Um, and I spend a lot more of our time really just making sure our analysts have the right resources that they need. So what sort of interactions on kind of a daily basis do you or members of your team have with you know coaching staffs or players, the on-field personnel? I guess there are uh, two different types of on-field personnel. Broadly, there's our minor league on-field personnel and uh, our major league personnel. We're really fortunate that uh, we get to spend a lot of time with the major league group because they're here half of the time during the season. And so we have um, a couple analysts who are really fully dedicated to the major league staff, answering, answering their questions, uh, doing a lot of advanced research. Um, I think that role of advanced scout, which historically was actually somebody who would go out uh, in advance of the team and go see people ahead of time, uh, has now become a little bit more of a hybrid between scout and analyst. And so some members of our R&D team are supporting that group um, quite heavily. And so they in contact with our major league coaches every single day. Uh, for me, I probably end up meeting with uh, a coach or our advanced scouts, uh, you know, at least a couple times during each homestand, uh, something is happening. And then on the minor league side, we have uh, a couple analysts who are fully dedicated to helping out, uh, helping out our minor league coaches and making sure they have the information they need, looking for changes in players, um, often using true media to identify some of those changes or answer questions those coaches uh, coaches may have. So um, we've moved to a system where our analysts are, uh, I would say, lightly specialized. They um, aren't, aren't entirely 100% dedicated to one area, but certainly have kind of their core areas of responsibility. And so working with the coaching staff, um, either major league staff or minor league staff uh, tends to be core areas of responsibility for, uh, for different analysts. One guy might tend to focus on, we'll just say the hitting side more. One might focus on pitching or fielding or something along those lines, that kind of specialization a little bit. So uh, yeah, we have that specialization somewhat when working with coaches, but then we also have some specialization in terms of um, analysts who are working on the amateur draft or working on building our pro projection system. I think this is common throughout baseball as research groups have grown. There was a time where basically mm -hmm. I, I think everybody's jobs were really determined by the calendar. If it was a couple months before the amateur draft, that's what that the analyst was working on. If it was right before spring training, they were probably working on tools for the major league staff. We've now moved to a system where we have enough um, person power to uh, have people sort of dedicated to some of these tasks most of the year. Um, and we still have some analysts that, that float in between as, uh, as necessary. You mentioned the calendar kind of dictates what you do. What does the off season look like for your department? Those, you know, three to four months between the end of the regular season, or of course you hope playoffs and kind of when spring training really gets going, uh, in February. 
Yeah. So hopefully the off season will be very short for us. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I actually that one of the things that's been surprising to me in my I've had two off seasons so far with the Twins, and I think I actually have felt much. It's felt much busier during the off season than during the season. That's typically a time when uh, when we've done a lot of hiring. Um, our group has grown um, has grown a fair amount, and uh, we. We rely a lot on our intern and fellowship program. And so um, this year we have, I think, from the analyst side, uh, we've got four interns and fellows. And so we've, we identified that group um, during the offseason last year and interviewed a whole lot of people. I had a pretty in-depth process there. Um, and coordinating that uh, is, is a pretty, pretty monumental task that a lot of our, um, a lot of our full-time group helps out with. Um, so... That I'd say the off season is, is filled with a whole lot of hiring, um, and I think that uh, probably that may be somewhat atypical in that the last two years we've been a little busier hiring than maybe we anticipate being um, in the say next two years. Um, and then also the off season includes uh, arbitration, which uh, is really a concerted effort for a few weeks. There's some preparation going into uh, some meetings in the fall where we talk with Major League Baseball uh, about our plan for arbitration. So we do a lot of preparation for those meetings. And then uh, early January, basically right after getting back from the um, Christmas and New Year's break, we negotiate uh, negotiate those deals. And uh, there it tends to be really a flurry of activity towards the end, but a fair amount of preparation put in uh, put in at the beginning. And then last offseason was a little busier than usual. Hiring analysts, we were also hiring um, hiring our major league coaching staff. We, after making a managerial change, uh, first we hired the manager and then filled out the rest of the staff with a combination of uh, people from outside the organization and people from uh, inside the organization as well. We're talking with Daniel Adler, Twins Director of Baseball Operations here on the Expected Value Podcast. I want to ask kind of about that hiring process, not so much the choosing the manager, but uh, your chief baseball officer said last year, the new manager would need to embrace advanced numbers and analytics. Not to say that Paul Molitor didn't before that, but that that's just something that's basically a job requirement now. So from your perspective, what's the onboarding process like as you begin working with a new coaching staff? Or or maybe what do you do to ensure that everyone's on the same page from a a team perspective as far as analytics go? Good question. I think for, for Rocco, especially coming from Tampa, where they uh, they were really one of the pioneers in this area uh, in terms of using stats uh, in the front office to make decisions and also with the coaching staff. He, by virtue of his experience in Tampa, spending some time in the front office and then also a fair amount of time on their coaching staff, he really um, probably knew a lot more about different tools that could be helpful uh, than maybe even some of our analysts because they've been doing some really great stuff there. So he had some ideas about what um, what he wanted, what he wanted to rely on. And then we uh, we communicated that with our analysts and set them to work some of the models we already had in place. Uh, and then some of the models we had to build, uh, build fresh. Um, but we were fortunate. This was actually our second year in a row having somebody who had spent some time in the Tampa organization. Our uh, bench coach, Derek Shelton, had joined the year before. And so it was helpful. Um, he was a longtime hitting coach with the Rays and then spent uh, spent a year with the Blue Jays. Um, but he had a lot of ideas as uh, 
from the perspective of a hitting coach of what types of stats he liked to look at and um, how those could be effective, how we could prepare reports. Um, as as you can imagine, you've seen some of this firsthand. A lot of our reports are coming from True Media, um, and I think the coaches who've had a chance to use um, use the tools are usually pretty impressed with what they can do self-service-wise, and then the things they can't, usually we can build some pretty slick reports that uh, update automatically for them as well. So you mentioned the hitting thing. I, I have to at least ask about the twin success this season, particularly with the home run. Um, as we're recording this, Minnesota's a couple games clear of the Indians in the AL Central. You're leading the majors in home runs. You're on pace to destroy the major league single season record. Uh, I saw a quote from you that you said the uppercut swing is like the three-point shot in the NBA, end quote. And I think we've seen a similar revolution kind of in the two sports recently. Without giving away you know, state secrets or anything, what can you tell us about Minnesota's kind of home run explosion this season. I think uh, we've we've hit a lot more home runs than uh, any any projection system we've put together would have uh, would have predicted. I think we've been fortunate to have really strong seasons from a number of um, a number of guys. Some were in the organization before, and uh, some some were not. I think during the off season we made uh, a somewhat conscious decision to sign. Uh, signed players with a lot of power. We did, didn't expect you know, these type of this kind of result, but right. we we did decide to prioritize power over maybe um, maybe on base a little bit. And you know there there certainly have been some some games where it feels like we're a little bit uh, feast or famine, and we we maybe don't have quite the uh, the number of contact hitters who can move the guys over. But again, that was that was a decision we made that um, you know overall. Uh, I think has led to um, some really strong, uh, strong offensive offensive results for us. Looking over at the defensive side, uh, Twins have shifted 37% of the time this year, fourth most in the majors, uh, according to MLB's tracking. So you've obviously had some success convincing coaches, players of the value of shifting. Uh, what is the process like just communicating the shift ideas to coaches and players? Because we're all familiar with, you know, the old, the stereotype of players and coaches, which I think we, we know is changing. But what is that like to communicate these ideas uh, to coaches and players who at the very least needed explained or con some convincing uh, before they're going to kind of execute the concepts? Most of that responsibility falls on our advanced analysts. I will check in with coaches and kind of ask them if they have questions um, occasionally I'll talk to players a little bit, but I really, um, leave things in the hands of the coaches where, uh, we don't really view it as an analyst job to educate players directly for the most part. Um, but I think we were again, kind of fortunate that, um, Rocco and Derek Shelton, both coming from one of the early organizations to really take advantage of shifting. They, they felt pretty comfortable with it. They, uh, feel good having those conversations with, with our pitchers after the ball sneaks through the gap where the uh, third baseman quote should have been. So I think we've been able to manage, uh, manage that well, but Hey, it's loss aversion is a, is a very real thing. And uh, every time the ball gets through the hole, I'll admit that, uh, you know, I get a sinking feeling in my stomach. Oh man, we could have had an out otherwise. And also thinking uh, there are certainly some pitchers who uh, might be pretty disappointed, but I think we've done a good job um, in the major leagues communicating that. And then probably even more important, all through the minor leagues, getting players um, comfortable with the shift, getting fielders comfortable fielding in those positions, which can be uh, a little bit awkward at times, for, at times, particularly in situations where you're trying to turn a double play or something like that. Uh, 
and then also getting pitchers comfortable with the idea um, that we are we are trying to help them. This is this is not some evil plot to uh, to hurt their stats, um, but it is going to look uh, look a little bit different. I read an article on the Athletic from last year, and you talked about how the Astros uh, got reliever Ryan Presley from the Twins, and like they do with seemingly everyone. Astros got him to throw his curveball more. He had great success. Uh, what do you learn from an experience like that? Yeah, that was a, a tough learning experience for us. Presley um, had a very solid season with us, and then he went to the Astros and you know, became otherworldly and one of the top few relievers in baseball. Uh, I think the effectiveness of his secondary pitches, were, that was not a huge surprise to us. I think we had not been, as a coaching staff and probably as an analytical staff, I think we had not been creative enough to get through him to throw those pitches more frequently. And uh, that, you know, that was a, a big learning experience for us. And um, I think that it's hard. I think the Astros are really fortunate in some ways. It's a little bit of a positive feedback loop. Once you've built up the credibility that um, Brent Strom, their pitching coach, has, and their whole analytical group, I think it's probably uh, they've they've earned that reputation and they they definitely deserve it. But I think when they ask guys to make changes, my guess is it's probably um, maybe a little more straightforward and there's a little more trust. And so we're still in that phase where we need to um, earn the trust of our players. And, uh, you know, I think we've had some um, notable successes in both minor league and major league this year that hopefully will help as we, um, you know, we attempt to find guys in other organizations who we think maybe aren't relying on their best pitches, whether that's um, pitch type or if they can be throwing in a um, different part of the zone. Uh, so, uh, yeah, these are, they're different, they're difficult conversations and um, uh, hopefully we can earn the trust of pitchers, but we are, uh, I, I feel that we've made, we've made some really positive steps in terms of our um, pitching analysts to our pitching coordinators to our pitching coaches in the minor leagues and our pitching coaches in the major leagues and i think um we've we've started to see some positive results but yeah that was a tough um, very tough lesson for us but ultimately one that i think has made us a lot better as an organization despite the fact that uh, we certainly could use a uh, you know a reliever of uh, ryan presley's calorie right i want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago about your taking spanish lessons and my cursory research told me that your Spanish was decent and you talked about how it was different uh, than kind of what players tend to use from different places. What sort of differences, if any, have you seen in how different baseball cultures embrace or uh, access the analytics? It's a good question. And I, I'll admit that I haven't had deep analytical discussions with a ton of players, whether um, native English speakers or native Spanish speakers. I think you know one of the changes that we have, as an organization have tried to be really sensitive to is making sure we have coaches at each level um, who speak uh, speak Spanish, whether native or you know fluent um, as a as a second language, and can really explain things to guys. Because I think there are situations where there are players who are very intelligent, very capable, um, but maybe their English is just not quite as strong and they find themselves in a spot where they're they're nodding along um pretending to pretending to understand what a coach is saying and ultimately mm -hmm. maybe not fully absorbing it and i think that's for us as an organization that's a, a big challenge to make sure we're communicating with each player whether uh we had a player who we just recently traded um who was 
Taiwanese and he had his translator with him all the time. Um, in some ways, it was pretty obvious with him, his English was uh, improving, not, not terribly strong, but always had a translator. So people knew that. Whereas I think there could be a player from the Dominican who knows enough English to say some of the right things, but actually isn't following stuff as much. And that's on us as an organization to uh, make sure he understands what uh, what's going on and, uh, you know, so he can perform his absolute best. So I, I've sort of dodged the question because I don't totally have uh, a sense for kind of different cultures, how they're embracing it. I think one thing that I can say a little bit is I think the younger players these days, guys who we just selected in the draft recently, uh, have grown up with this stuff, whether it's something like Blast Motion or Rapsodo or Trackman. They've been using this stuff for a couple of years, and it's been part of their baseball lives for a pretty significant chunk of their career, whereas guys who are more advanced in their career may, may just not be familiar with it. So we have very different challenges. Um, I think the age differences are quite quite significant as well. And uh, obviously, as, as time goes on, we'll have some of those younger players matriculating up through the minors and uh, into the majors. And I think that will certainly make life for analysts very different. There's probably new, new different challenges, but I think it's more and more common. Some of the guys we drafted this year probably have a much better idea of their you know, Rapsodo or Trackman stats than, uh, than many, uh, many analysts uh, would have, you know, just a couple of years ago. That's good. And I like how you're saying the team takes that responsibility to communicate these things to them, whether it's through language differences or cultures or whatever. I want to shift gears a little bit. We're talking with Daniel Adler, Minnesota Twins Director of Baseball Operations, our guest here on Expected Value. And and look a little bit at kind of how you got here, because I think you have one of the more interesting career paths for someone in a baseball front office. You worked for the Jaguars, the Browns, even I believe as a driver for the Patriots before this. And we could spend a whole podcast, I think, talking about differences in baseball and football analytics. I think the consensus would be that the NFL is, you know, a decade, two decades behind MLB, generally speaking, from an analytics standpoint. If you had to pick out just a couple of key things, what would be some of the differences you've seen in how baseball and NFL teams approach analytics as a concept and integrate them with coaching staffs? I think uh, probably two decades behind is probably a, a little harsh to football because I think they the NFL teams will probably close that gap very quickly when uh, when they so desire. And I think the the next gen stat data, you know, RFID chips on, in the shoulder pads and getting player tracking data is going to change things in the NFL. And I really wouldn't be surprised if in a few years NFL teams have developed their um, analytics groups. Sim to a level uh, similar to where baseball is. But in terms of the differences, I think it, it's probably a little bit of a case of defaults in that in, at least in my experience with the twins, I think a lot of the time our analytical data is sort of the starting point for our decision-making process, whether if it's setting a lineup or signing a free agent or making a trade, we have some model projecting things. And we will certainly adjust off of that model based on factors that we don't think are accurately captured by the model, but usually that model kind of sets the, the starting point. In the NFL, I think the, in my experience, the starting point for most decisions was kind of a more traditional type of analysis, more traditional scouting, uh, more traditional coaching analysis. And then perhaps you could use analytical information to uh, adjust that uh, decision one way or another. But I think the, the voice of, um, models and data is probably a lot stronger in baseball. And I think for the moment, I would say justifiably so, because the data we 
in baseball is just much richer. There's many more games. Uh, we have ball tracking data for uh, quite a number of years now. We have player tracking data for not quite as many years. And the game itself is probably a little bit uh, more straightforward to quantify. We, we don't have every answer, but I think we have probably a few more answers than they do in football. Uh, my guess is football will make some pretty major steps forward you know, with the release of player tracking data to every single team. Right. Going back kind of even before your NFL time, before your MLB time, before that, you were an economics major at Harvard. Um, I think most baseball fans are familiar with the increase in you know educated, economically minded people in baseball front offices. For you specifically, how did that economics education, kind of the nuts and bolts of, of that degree help you as you got into the sports world? So I think I went to college in a time before I think the, the rise of whether you call it data science or uh, analytics was quite um, was quite as ubiquitous. And so for me, economics ultimately comes down to allocating scarce resources and how do you make the best possible decisions with your with whatever resources you have. And so I think it's pretty generalizable to almost any problem you would encounter in sports or really anywhere else in life. Uh, NFL, you know, it's very obvious you have the salary cap and how you allocate that um, it will ultimately determine how successful your team is. But also you have, uh, you know, a certain number of snaps and how you um, decide, you know, you'll hear coaches talking about they run a certain play to set up another play. Um, you know, you can do a somewhat economic style cost benefit analysis to decide whether is it worth burning a play that you don't think is going to be that good that makes this other play some amount more successful. So I think viewing things through that lens um, has been really valuable for me uh, in, in my career. And then the other piece that I got very interested in in college was uh, the intersection of economics and psychology and what uh, biases can get in the way of maybe making the best possible decisions. And uh, I certainly have many biases and make uh, many poor decisions, but I really enjoy thinking about uh, how can I maybe iron out some of those biases? How can I use data to perhaps make better decisions? And uh, you know, all of those things are pretty applicable to baseball, football, any sports, and you know, really any business. You talked earlier how you're you're involved in the hiring process for your department and things like that. And so I'm sure you, like a lot of us in the industry, often get asked, you know, how do I get a job with the baseball team, or how do I break into the sports industry, or something like that. What are kind of some of the key skills or experiences that you're looking for when you're trying to figure out who you're going to hire? So uh, there's a real opportunity now, just the research on the public research uh, available is quite very high quality. And uh, admittedly, not all of the data we have uh, access to internally is available publicly. But um, you know, we're always impressed when we see uh, somebody take a data set that's been available to many people and ask a novel question and analyze um, analyze the data in, in a unique way and come up with some interesting insights. So certainly that's one potential way in um, is you know, producing really good uh, public research. Uh, the other thing for us is our application process for analysts is that we give people a data set, ask them a question, and uh, basically have them have them perform um, some type of analysis and write it up, talk about their findings, and then we grade those uh, grade those blind. We have a couple people grade each one. We uh, grade them blind, and then we 
choose uh, choose the best people to advance to sort of some of the final stages, which are more more based on fit and communication. But uh, really, the heart of our process is if you do a really great job um, analyzing the data set that we give, you're um, going to end up with a position here. And so we have a, a wide range of people. Um, we've had some people who are just finishing undergrad who've done really well, you know, in the top few um, entries of over 100. We've also had some people who are um, who have completed PhD programs who have done really well. Um, so that that is our process uh, for the moment. But we're you know continually evolving that process and trying to find um, new sources of talent. One thing we think about a lot is how we can attract people who are maybe maybe didn't grow up with um, the MLB bed sheets. Uh, you know, people who are just absolutely obsessed with baseball. We want people to be um, interested in the job and interested in tackling these problems, but you know, looking for a diversity of thought, you know, maybe it's somebody who comes from a different um, different field of study and they might have some really new ideas to add rather than somebody who spent their entire life um, reading fan graphs, hardball times, baseball prospectus. Those people are absolutely fantastic as well, but sometimes getting somebody from a very different field can be, uh, can be helpful as well. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Daniel Adler, Minnesota Twins Director of Baseball Operations here on Expected Value. Daniel, I want to finish up with just kind of some rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind or quick response, things along those lines. Did you have a moment when you're growing up when you realized, look, I'm not going to be a professional athlete anymore. I got to figure something else out. Uh, I think probably somewhere around middle school, it became uh, quite, it was probably obvious long before, but middle school was where uh, my athletic uh, prowess peaked uh, or probably somewhere before when I was no longer even the best player on uh, my middle school team. So I think I figured figured it out uh, then or maybe even well before. For any reason at all, what is your favorite statistic? This could be baseball, it could be any sport. Favorite statistic that for any reason at all? Uh, I think win probability added is a really fun one. And I guess there are versions in uh, both baseball and football. Um, but I think it's it's fun. It tells a story about what that guy has done in, um, in a specific game. And I think that is, it's a lot of fun to look at. It's probably, obviously, anybody who studies it knows uh, it's not the most predictive. We probably wouldn't make a free agent signing based uh, purely on a player's win probability added. But just as a descriptive what happened, I think it uh, can tell a really good story. And I think it's also, also really fun to look at in the NFL when there's a really big play. How much did this um, how much did this help, uh, help the guys team? Right. For sure. What is your favorite number and why? Ooh, uh, I'll, I'll say three, uh, because that my, uh, my birthday is on the third of the month. And, uh, that's the number I used to, uh, used to wear when I played baseball. I, I guess I was also pretty chubby. And so it's sort of in honor of it as well. <laughs> you have a favorite athlete that you had growing up, any sport? Uh, favorite athlete. This one it doesn't hold up quite uh, quite as well because I think his off field history was not uh, not sterling. But uh, Albert Bell was uh, growing up in as a as an Indians fan. Albert Bell was uh, was a real favorite uh, favorite of mine. You have a best or, or favorite game that you've gotten to see in person? Oof, probably my um, probably the most fun game I've watched as a fan was the uh, 2002 Fiesta Bowl with uh, Ohio State and Miami. It was really special. Went out there with my uh, dad, brother, grandfather, uh, some uncles and cousins being from uh, Ohio. Uh, that We didn't have none of the Cleveland teams won until the, the Cavaliers in 2016. And 
Um, we uh, adopted Ohio State. I have some extended family members who attended there. So we sort of jumped on that bandwagon and have been on it for a long time. But going out there, it was a pretty amazing game. That Miami team was just absolutely stacked in terms of uh, NFL talent. Uh, Ohio State was as well. Miami, I think, hadn't lost in about more than, I think more than two years. Uh, Ohio State was a huge underdog uh, and uh, pulled, off, pulled off the championship there. And that was, that was a pretty uh, amazing experience. And that was the the game with the delayed pass interference call toward the end. Am I right? I was uh, I was not going to bring up that a call that people <laughs> might deem questionable was uh, was quite uh, was quite important. Yeah, I believe that was the um, the first overtime. So it was a two overtime game. In the first overtime, Ohio State needed to score a uh, touchdown to match Miami, who had already scored a touchdown. And uh, yeah, they threw a relatively late pass interference that gave Ohio State. Uh, new life and uh, then they punched it in uh, just just after that and then one on the uh, subs in the subsequent overtime yeah, my dad is originally from Miami and a big Hurricanes fan so I, I'm kind of obligated to at least just throw that out there make sure everyone's aware <laughs> that, that game was notable for a number of reasons the other big one that people probably remember was Willis McGahee suffering uh, one of the more knee injuries but he actually ended up uh, coming back, I think he it took a full year of recovery. He was drafted in the NFL, very different era in the NFL that somebody would take a running back um, in the first round who you knew was not going to play for an entire year, and it was unclear whether he would be back ever. I think, anyway, the running back position, uh, probably somewhat as a result of analysis, has been devalued as people have come to realize that it's maybe a position that uh, – is maybe a little easier to replace, and the uh, the career mm -hmm. length is just extremely uh, extremely short. All right, last question. Wrap things up. Have you had a professional kind of how did I get here moment? Whether you know something that made you shake your head in disbelief at where you were, or something along those lines. It happens a lot, and I try to uh, try to maintain that sense of uh, gratitude because uh, there are there are so many moments where I look around, and even my absolute, uh, you know, worst day or project that's really frustrating. I think back to when I was in consulting, if somebody said, hey, you've got to do this really, uh, you know, brutal data cleaning task. And at the end, you're going to present to an NFL GM, uh, I would have said, oh, my gosh, this is unbelievable. Like, please sign me up for this job. Um, so I think a few that come to mind. So when I was with the Jags, um, I was in the uh, in the coaching booth during games, giving uh, a little bit of advice on timeouts and timing situations and occasionally uh, some challenges. But there was one time where I made a, um, made a pretty bad mistake in terms of um, stammering or not giving, not giving very good information. And I was uh, promptly told by the head coach that I had made a mistake and maybe not the nicest way ever. And you know, it was quite a blow and I felt really terrible, but then also stepped back and I was thinking, holy crap, I'm getting yelled at by an NFL head coach during the game. Like, yes, this is not, this is not great. And I need to need to tighten this up and not make this mistake. But this is, uh, this is pretty amazing. Uh, you know, kind of a surreal experience. So that's, uh, that's one from football and uh, baseball. Um, I think I was really fortunate just a couple months after I started with the team uh, here in Minnesota in 2017. Um, I was lucky enough to be on the road with the team when we were in Cleveland and uh, and clinched the wild card game. And I had done almost 
nothing to uh, earn that celebration because I just joined the team. Uh, but it was pretty crazy to be in the locker room when people are pouring beer on each other. Um, and I remember going up to Bartolo Colon, uh, who was on our team. And uh, that was a pretty surreal experience because I'd grown up watching him uh, in his uh, slightly slimmer and earlier days. And uh, to be in Cleveland in the stadium where I had watched a lot of games celebrating, um, mm. you know, celebrating the team that I uh, now work for making the playoffs and uh, exchanging a few words with Bartolo Colon was uh, that was a pretty unbelievable uh, experience as well. Bartolo Colon's a good story to end with. Daniel Adler, Twins <laughs> Director of Baseball Operations, thank you for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks a lot, Paul. Back in the True Media Network studios, I'm Paul Carr, joined by Albert Larcata for some interview reaction. Albert is True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert, you've known Daniel going back to his Jaguars days. What was your top takeaway from what he had to say? Yeah, I have known Daniel for a long time. Great guy. Um, yeah, lots of interesting tidbits in there. I think the one that stood out to me was uh, early on he mentioned uh, Rocco, the coach coming over from Tampa, having some knowledge of the um, – analytical side of things that the Rays do. They're sort of world-class R&D group that's well-known. It's an interesting macro topic. At a high level, MLB is fortunate to have that kind of cross-pollination go on where you have you know smart people who end up working for a number of different teams over the course of, of their careers. Um, you get to share ideas more. You get uh, just the whole industry becomes a bit more enlightened faster um, than in other industries that are just getting started. Uh, however, I think in other in, in other sports like football and soccer, that's going to start to happen more. These uh, initial hires that are coming on as more junior analysts are going to you know become senior analysts and then move on to other teams and other parts of the business even, um, and then people will backfill them and that whole process will kind of start all over again. So it's just interesting to hear that that's reached all the way up to the coaching ranks in MLB and it's uh, just getting started in the other sports. And I think that ties into one thing I like that he said, how he encapsulated the difference between baseball and football analytics. I mean, we know the two sports are in different places analytically. Baseball's you know some number of years ahead. And a lot of that's because of the numbers that have mattered historically because of data availability. I thought he phrased it well when he said that baseball analysis often starts with the numbers and then the scouting and such is layered on after that. Well, in football analysis usually starts on the coaching and scouting side with the numbers then built in after that. I mean, none of that's breaking news, of course. I thought he summed it up succinctly quite nicely, though. And a lot of the reason for that is, is what you're saying because of how ideas are spreading throughout baseball. Right, right. Yeah. I, some of that's probably not even new in baseball, right? Baseball plays so many games. Uh, so you pretty much every day for six months straight, it's really hard to, you know, dig into video like NFL coaches are able to do having seven days to prepare for their next opponent. Uh, even in soccer, you usually have a week or so to prepare. So yeah, I would imagine that's not new in baseball. The, the, the idea of using a aggregated numbers, high level, you know, graphics and more, uh, I know the right word is, uh, objective analysis, um, as opposed to digging deep into the video like they do in other sports. They just have more time. So you, you can uncover a lot of stuff by watching video, but not if you only have a very finite amount of time to do it. 
yeah, football, you can sometimes take, whatever, half a day to maybe watch video with the goal of doing something. You could get off an analytics platform like ours in a couple of minutes. You might want to take that time to pull something from the video you can't get from the numbers. The time thing's a good point because you're not turning around and playing another game 12 to 20 hours later like you are in baseball. Right, right, exactly. And I think in, in other sports, it'll become more like baseball where, I don't know if he it starts with data per se, but there's almost maybe three levels. There's data will help you get into the right video to watch. You watch the video and then you come back and help have the data help support the video. I'm not sure that first step is actually there with a lot of NFL and uh, soccer clubs all over the world quite yet, but uh, that, that, that would make sense to be the next step in those sports. All right. Thanks, Albert. That will just about wrap things up for this debut episode of Expected Value. Thanks again to the Minnesota Twins' Daniel Adler for being our first guest. Some housekeeping items to take care of on the way out the door. Over the next couple weeks, we'll talk to Michael Lopez, the NFL's Director of Analytics, and Lucy Rushton, Atlanta United's Head of Technical Recruitment and Analysis. If you have guest suggestions or any feedback, please email us, expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. That's T-R-U, medianetworks.com. Or reach out on Twitter, publicly, DM, either at True Media Sports or me, at Paul Carr. As we get this podcast going, we'd love it if you'd spread the word however possible, social media, digitally, talk to somebody. And of course, we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone at True Media Networks, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Expected Value.